This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, good morning. You are listening to The Morning Run. It's 6am on Monday the 18th of April. I'm Shazana Mokhtar together with Philip C and Tan Chen Lee this morning. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. hello. Is good it morning. Monday or is it Friday? It's a good question. I still feel Friday <laughs> vibes, right? Because it yeah, is, it's, it's a short work week. Uh, there, it, it, it is a public holiday tomorrow for Nuzul Quran. And we're coming off the back of Easter weekend, which mm-hmm. I know many have been observing um, over the weekend. And then there was also the Tamil New Year on Thursday. Yeah. A lot of, it's the, it's kind of like a convergence of festivities in a way, because of course the Muslims are celebrating Ramadan with all its attendant um, brouhaha. I was uh, in public over the weekend. It truly feels very festive. There were all the bazaars happening and then I was frantically trying to find Easter eggs everywhere <laughs> across the city. Uh, found it but very expensive. But yes, I think the, the mood is uh, joyous and I think very much in anticipation also for Hari Raya as well. That's right. It has been two years since any Hari Raya of grand magnitude could be held. So I think everyone's really relishing the return of that festive feeling. But of course, uh, COVID-19 is still among us. And so we should all be uh, mindful of the SOPs and our physical distancing when we can as we go out and about. Um, We do have a packed show lined up for you this morning, including a discussion of the pandemic. But starting at 7.15, amid the hawkish sentiment of global central banks. How is the Malaysian banking sector expected to fare? We're going to hear the outlook from Alka Anbarasu, Senior Vice President at Moody's Investor Service, during that segment. And then at 7.30, we discussed the drama over Twitter after Elon Musk made a bid to take over the company last week. Dan Ives of Wetbush Securities joined us for this chat. Yes, I think also the whole poison pill discussion that's been emanating and brewing over there. At 7.45, we discussed the latest news on COVID-19 and how to navigate a pandemic in transition to an endemic with Dr. Vinod Balasubramaniam of Sunway University. So we're going to have all this and more on The Morning Run today. You'll want to keep it here, BFM 89.9. That was Steely Dan with Do It Again. We're doing it again this Monday. We're back in studio. You're listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Philip C. and Tan Chen Lee. It's 6.08 in the morning. And as is typical of Mondays, there are many among us who may feel less than charitable <laughs> that it's Monday again. You know, it's not called Manic Monday for nothing. And it could be the kind of day that has people spewing profanities at times because today is also the day where... Uh, Students where school kids are back in school in full force. I think the rotation of schools, uh, school sessions has been ended. So we're going to see packed. Uh, we're going to see a lot of traffic on the road, I presume. And um, I guess, yeah, the question that we're discussing today is whether cursing has become acceptable, and um, especially in the workplace. Yes, and especially nowadays that we are, we have so much of stress that is built up uh, among us, like mm. uh, rising food prices, rising fuel prices. You know, you go to the petrol station, you look at the the number on the 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 device and you're like I don't want to say the word <laughs> and then you'll be maybe when you go to work and because finally we're all back to the office and then you meet some of your co-workers again and maybe you know yes there's a lot of love-hate relationship with them but sometimes there will be moments that will drive you a little bit crazy and you want to say the F word again. And so we're discussing about swearing at the workplace, whether it's appropriate. And we're referring to this article on Wall Street Journal titled, Sure, Work Makes Us Want to Swear, But Should You? And uh, in the article, it actually quoted uh, Nick 
amazing directors of research at Centio, uh, a financial re- intelligence platform, has found that business formality is on the way out. However, deploy a curse word at the wrong moment or in the wrong company, it can swiftly derail your career. I think this discussion also comes up because in the two years of the pandemic, we've been doing this either working from home or having a hybrid working environment, yep. which brings a lot of casual uh, into, I guess, workplace interactions, yeah? Because if you're talking from home in front of, in your TV room, for example, that's a really different feeling from sitting in a boardroom um, with your colleagues in, in like more professional atmosphere. Well, I think that's the boundaries of professionalism we have. And that's why I, I don't advocate any time you should be able to use, you know, profanity in the workplace. I feel the problem we have now is that people use these curse words and swear words as a way to build connection. That, I think, is the central problem here, which is they think, oh, if I use this, I make, it makes me feel more relatable. It makes me feel like I can connect with you. And I think that is one of the biggest challenges that people have, right? There's this whole struggle to say that I'm with you, I understand your problem, or I want to amplify or emphasize something very important. And that's why you see in, in the article that you picked, uh, Chen Li, that when you look at investor conferences and shareholder meetings, we have hit a five-year record high, right? 166 such transcripts with foul language coming through. That actually really surprised me, you know, because I don't make it a habit to read like verbatim what happens in <laughs> in a board yeah. meetings or in AGMs. But the fact that uh, you see a rise in um, profanity, uh, that made me, that kind of made me stop and think like, oh, okay. So even in these very business type environments, these, you, where you think it's, you know, st- suits all the way, um, they're, they're using that um, and, I think and they it's using, being recorded. Yes. And I think they use it intentionally. It's mm. usually sometimes where, you know, it just kind comes out naturally and I can sometimes forgive you for that but this I think becomes intentional just to make a point. I wonder how much of this has to do with startup culture as well and the fact that a lot of startups have ballooned into these huge firms or into these listed firms right whether that comes from the initial very casual way things are set up and then you get to these uh, environments and you just kind of carry on with that uh, practice or habit. Yeah but first um, let's take a look at this you know when we see someone swear at a workplace what does it mean to you. I mean, what kind of image would that have towards other people around you? I mean, in my view, I think that it speaks a little bit of uh, that you cannot control your emotions. It's Mm. more like you are a little bit lacking in terms of the EQ management there. I feel like it depends on context as well. Yes. Right? Like yes. I don't expect to see here swearing at Bursa Malaysia, for example. Yes, yes, But I do expect yes. to hear it in, in a kitchen, in like a really busy kitchen and the chefs are kind of really frazzled. I can yeah. imagine a lot of profanity being thrown up there. I think your point is absolutely right. Like context, right? And also your culture. Like in Malaysia, I think what happens a lot is one-to-one conversations, it's peppered, I'm sure. Then when you start entering meeting rooms, then you see it a bit more divisive and split. But generally in Malaysia, still culturally, we do not condone these things in the broader public engagements. Even when you think about your career stages, you know, as a junior in an organization, you wouldn't do it. But as you become more senior, you feel you have more liberty to do it because you understand the DNA of the business so you can kind of imbue your personality. So I think the problem also we have is that, oh, swearing also reflects your relaxation and that it reflects your personality, which I really hope that isn't the case. I feel like I understand the um, significance and the satisfaction of using a well-placed swear word. But at the same time, the English language... And really any language is so rich. There are other ways also to express uh, a certain emotion or make a certain point. I think we can all be creative in that, right? Instead I, I, fully, of going to swear I, I words. fully advocate that because people think, oh, you know, that works in the creative industry. But my view is 
if you're more that creative, why can't you just find other words, right? <laughs> instead of that word per se. So where's the creativity for that if you're saying that only applies to the creative industry? Well, tell us what you think. Do you think that cursing or profanity is becoming more acceptable in the workplace? I mean, what's your impression when you hear swearing in the workplace? You can WhatsApp us with your thoughts at 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. We're coming up to 6.14 in the morning. We're heading into some messages. And when we come back, we're going to be discussing ghostwriting or more specifically ghostwriting for social media posts. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. That was Haim with a little of your love. You're listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokdar with Philip C. and Tan Chen Lee. And a little bit of love is what many people are looking for on social media in a way when they put up their very shiny, happy posts. And the allure of social media is that you're viewing the authentic selves of others, right? You're given a window into the lives or thoughts of a person that you may not cross on the street. But at the same time, we're very well aware of how staged this authenticity can be, especially on platforms like Instagram. Instagram, YouTube, or TikTok. We know it takes a lot of effort to post up that really beautiful uh, Instagram photo, for example. So it perhaps it shouldn't be surprising that the staged nature of posting also permeates LinkedIn, uh, which is the social media for professional networking. But I, it was a revelation for me to find out that ghostwriting posts on LinkedIn is a thing, as detailed in an article on Business Insider. I mean, look at the price tags that people are now saying, right? Agencies and individuals can charge up to 2500 to 10000 a month, or even very high-in-demand LinkedIn ghostwriters can command 500 to 700 US dollars an hour. Shaz, we're in the wrong job. It's crazy. <laughs> I am pretty flabbergasted by those prices. And usually, ghostwriting, to me, I've always associated with the book industry. Yeah, You've got mm. these big names that uh, produce books. You, you see a title, for example, so-and-so wrote this book with so-and-so. And, so. and yes. you know the second so-and-so is the ghostwriter who really did all of the work, to be well, honest. Well, I, the fact that they actually mention the name credits that maybe perhaps, okay, not a ghost then because it's really come alive, the name. <laughs> but it, it might take, I think that's fine, like if it's in a corporation or business because they do hire quite a lot of ghostwriters. I have an issue with social media posting being ghostwritten because isn't it meant to reflect your personality, as you say, right? When it becomes staged authenticity, that's fake then. That's true. That's I think it's in terms of social media, it's no longer authentic anymore because it, like a personality that you see with beautiful photos and nice articles or whatever wording they're writing over there is usually by a team of people and not just one or two people mm. it could be a team of 10 people <laughs> to do to do up all these posts and because it, they earn a lot of money out of it they take it very professionally so what does it mean that you know it becomes important for someone to gain that following on social media so much so that they have to hire out or outsource the work of being seen as attractive or intellectual on social media um, to get that to get well, that attention. Well, well, it becomes a business, and I think that's that's the big challenge here. And you know, especially when it comes to LinkedIn, you are usually a, a professional. You work for an organization, and that's where you, the challenge is, right? You basically classify yourself as a business within the bigger context of the business you work in. That I think is the central problem here. Now, if you are an entrepreneur and you want to you know, kind of push your own business, then you're kind of pushing it as an organization. So then the blurred line is, where do you draw the distinction between yourself as a brand and the organization and company as a brand? The problem what you see now is that it's all meld and interconnected in this day and age. That I think is the central problem here. I actually think that uh, it may not be a problem. Uh, it may be a new 
profession. Fair. That's yeah. true point. A new per career path for a lot of people, especially the young people, um, you know, because it's just, I, we, we didn't know how this whole Instagram thing would have evolved when like 10 over years ago when it started, but it has really became an empire, business empire for a lot of these people and they take it, and that's why they have to write it very professionally. Even the photos that they hide, uh, the, the photos that they post is taken by professional photographers. <laughs> it's not kids play anymore that you just take an iPhone and just take a picture of that. It's treated very seriously. Do you see that's why there's such a, so much pushback against all these staged things, right? That's why you see in, in, in this day and age, you see many celebrities even take off the makeup and such because they people just are shunning that. And my only issue is that if you are just presenting yourself purely as you evolve, as you grow older and all that, will your business evolve at the same time? That, I think, is a central question. It could I, also, yeah. I guess it reflects just the change of the zeitgeist at the moment in that we see a lot of... You, we see the influencer movement coming up, right? So mm. previously, you had to have achieved a certain stature in terms of maybe you're like a leader at a big business or you're a celebrity to get that influencer clout. But now you find that just by virtue of being likable on social media, yeah. you get you get, you get get the... Um, you, you get the I guess, tag of being a creator and of being followed and of being influential. And that's kind of where this is all converging into and why ghostwriting for media posts have come out. So I find it interesting that when it comes to social media, I don't mind if there's a team behind it because you're kind of getting creative direction per se. I worry sometimes when it comes to LinkedIn ghostwriting, mm. what you want to say versus what the ghostwriter wants to say could be totally you know, very different, right? And this is the debate also we were having just now, right? What is the difference between professional ghostwriters and consultants? in a corporate workspace environment, right? Because presumably the management has a viewpoint and they're just getting someone to articulate it in a much better way. But do you really need to spend so much money and outsource that? Interesting, yeah. Like how do you, how do you justify these fees? Um, as you mentioned, it can come up to like $800 $800 per post. It could be like, what, $600 per yeah. hour. Uh, these are pretty monumental fees, uh, very equivalent to the legal profession, some have said. Uh, for sure. Legal fees, equivalent to legal fees, but it, gets, it goes to show how important brand is now, isn't it? That's It all goes down to advertising and how you want to portray yourself to the world. But tell us what you think. How would you react if you found out that a influencer you followed on social media, LinkedIn in particular, used ghostwriting services? Would that change your perception of them? You can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. It's coming up to 6.25 in the morning and we're heading into the 6.30am news bulletin. After that, when we come back, we're going to take a look at what's making headlines around the world. Here's Pat Benatar with All Fired Up to take you to the bulletin. BFM 89.9. That was Aloe Black singing something that all of us want. I think I need a dollar. You're listening to The Morning Run with Shazana, Philip and Chen Li. I disagree. I need more than a dollar. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I need much more than a dollar now. Inflation is to kicked in, Shaz. That is very true, but it's not as catchy in a song. <laughs> Anyways, it's 6.41 in the morning. It's that time of day where we take a look at what's uh, making headlines in the world. So who would like to start us off? Let's start with Hong Kong and China. So Hong Kong very good news actually they have reported fewer than 1,000 COVID cases on Saturday for the second straight day which has subsided a lot from its peak of more than 55,000 last month and starting from April 21st the restaurants will be able to stay open for dining in until 10pm and as many as 4 people will be allowed at a table gyms, museums, cinemas can reopen but bars re will remain shut that's very uh, good news I, I think exactly, and, and yes. I'm, I'm glad to see that Hong Kong one of the key financial hubs in the region is reopening I think one 
one of the central problems always with Hong Kong and China is that it's if you deep dive into the vaccination rate, it's that the lower vaccination rates are with the elderly. And that is what I think particularly makes it more vulnerable perhaps to other countries in the world. So it is also very comforting to see that there are three Chinese vaccines targeting Omicron for trial. And I hope that drives more confidence for especially the older population and segment to get themselves vaccinated. Exactly, because Shanghai government also urged the city's elderly residents, those above 60, um, to get their vaccines and boosters because only 62% of their residents aged 60 and older have received two shots of uh, COVID-related vaccines as of April 15, yeah. and 38% have gotten booster shots, which is quite low. Yeah, so I was just going to share with you a story I, I, I had on, uh, last week. I was talking to my friend who's in Shanghai, and I was remarking to him, I said, oh, you know, such beautiful pictures of the empty boulevards of Shanghai. He's like, yeah, well, you can see it. I can't see it. I'm stuck at home. <laughs> the the yes, there we go. The the strangeness of what COVID uh, does to people living in the city. On the topic of elderly um, folks and the low vaccination rates, I guess something that also to keep in mind is what the discussion in China is like over uh, elderly homes and how there have been there are questions over what the death toll is like at these elderly yeah. homes. I think there's a lot of um, questions on transparency of data and whether we're really seeing the true figures of the COVID nineteen infections over there. Well, to be fair, at the start of the pandemic in many Western countries, the target was also elderly homes where mm. we saw a raft and huge amount of deaths taking place there. And hopefully the pandemic will give will get that conversation continuing, yeah, about whether we're doing enough to take care of the elderly in these kinds of facilities, um, whether enough care is being given to them. And just one more quick story here. The US will be hosting ASEAN leaders in mid-May. Uh, President Biden will be holding a summit originally scheduled for March involving the Tan ASEAN leaders. I'm not sure whether our Prime Minister will be going, but I can get a sense that this is quite an important summit uh, in essence to kind of curtail China's growing influence in the region. Here. It's going to be interesting to see what comes out of that summit, yeah, and, and, and who attends. Um, as you said, I think, yeah, they're interested in in how, in, in shoring up their influence against China, one, but then there's so many other issues at play as well. We can see how divided ASEAN in, is on the war in Ukraine, for example, and how that's going to how, how the U.S. will approach, I guess, sort of um, dealing with these countries and try to persuade them to come on the right side or to at least stay neutral. It's I'd, I'd be watching that. I'd be watching that, but I, I really question the efficacy of such summits. I mean, under President Biden, we've seen so many summits, have we not, in mm -hmm. all sorts of shapes and sizes. But has it yielded anything? That is my question really here, that all these I worry, I worry come to nothing. I'm sure that the very hardworking diplomats in the background are frantically exchanging uh, drafts of text that the leaders are going to approve and issue. One thing I'm going to be watching is whether our Prime Minister, if he attends, ends up speaking in Bahasa, Bahasa Malaysia, Malaysia during yes. the meeting. That's something that I will be keeping oh, an eye on. Me too. <laughs> All right, I think we have time for maybe a quick other headline. Is there anything else that's caught your eye this morning? Well, the Russian-Ukraine conflict, I think the siege in Mariupol, I think, is really coming to fall. I think Russia originally offered a pathway out for surrendering, but it seems like the defenders of the city have refused and ignored that time timeline. And Mariupol is seen as a key strategic city for Russia if they're um, looking to take over uh, the Donbass region. A related headline that I thought was quite striking from the BBC, trucks stuck for miles to meet deadline to leave the EU. So these are Russian and Belarusian truckers mm -hmm. that have been trying 
trying to leave EU borders before sanctions are imposed. Uh, they said that the uh, line was up to 80 kilometers from the Polish border, just an example. Um, I can't really imagine what that looks like. That's uh, It's just wow. a lot of chaos that this mm. war has thrown the economy into. And at 6.45 in the morning, we're taking a quick break for some messages. And when we come back, we'll check out what's making headlines in our local newspapers and portals. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. That was The Clash with Rock the Casbah. You're listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokdar with Philip C. and Tan Chen Lee. It's Monday, the 18th of April, and we're taking a look at what's making headlines in our local newspapers and portals. Who'd like to start us off? Yeah, I'd like to start. Uh, perhaps not the most up-to-date story, but over the weekend, Sunday Star, I think what broke my heart uh, was the story over Mat Lajak, the bicycle Lanjak, where I think the story was recounting of the anguished father of a boy who survived the 2017 crash that killed eight cyclists over modified bicycles, right, against these daredevil young youngsters. So uh, over the weekend, you saw a lot of recriminations. Who was responsible for that? Was it the parents? Was it the children? Was it the ministry for the guidelines? And, and I think you see the Ministry of Transport also in quite a tizzy in how they have responded to the affair so far. That's right. There's been a lot of commentary on this case. I think it's uh, brought a lot of emotions to the forefront. Um, there was a particularly uh, good opinion piece I felt by Aidila Raza in Malaysia Kini, um, talking about how, you know, in this case, there are no everyone's a victim yes there's no one person to blame everyone uh, is a victim in this and i think that uh, i do wish to see malaysians uh, deal with this case in a lot more empathy than perhaps they are at the moment i wonder if the bigger issue is that there's just not many outlets for 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 youth to express themselves i mean that's why in the past we had things like raka muda right uh you know and we've had mud rumpet issues before we've had you know ponteng and lepak culture and such, right? So this is really an extension of how youth are trying to express themselves, isn't it? Yeah, and whether we're giving them enough safe outlets to be teenagers, essentially. But uh, all right, so that's one thing to watch. And I think there is a court case that's uh, going to the Court of Appeal today on this case. So something to keep an eye on. How about you, Chen Li? What's got your eye this morning? I'm looking at the uh, New Straits Times on page three. So our Prime Minister cautioned against airfare hike. He says that uh, he heard or he learned that flight ticket prices have surge by 500%. And for tickets to Sabah Sarawak, it will cost around 2,000 ringgit, which is, quoting him, almost equal to the fare to London, which yeah. is pretty pretty expensive, you ask me. And he says that it can be treated as an offence under the Price Control and Anti-Profiteering Act in 2021, 2011, I mean. Mm. So it's pretty, I, I guess it's because of the demand that, you know, we have been seeing. Finally, you know, we are able to fly and then everyone's trying to get their holidays and Sabasarao seems to be the place to go, I suppose. A lot of people have not been able to go back for the past two years. That's so it's really Sabasaraoikans working in the peninsula who want to go home for the Raya festivities. I think it, it's huge demand at the moment. Absolutely. I think this is a really a question of demand and supply here, you know. And I think the question here is that demand has far outstripped supply and that's why prices have rocketed to this extent. The question is what can you do, I think, to help you know ease that whole tension between demand and supply? I think that's the big central challenge. Do you add more flights? Can you add more capacity? I think that's also going to be part of the equation on how you're going to resolve this problem because as what you were saying, Shaz, this is three years of pent-up 
demand. Right. So it's something to also follow and see whether there are any uh, movements there. Um, I'm going to turn our attention to the political space and just the headlines that have, coming out or, that have been coming out over the weekend on this. Uh, firstly, uh, Datuk Sri Anwar Ibrahim and Datuk Sri Najib Razak will be taking to the debate stage on May 12th. So they finally come to a date on, on when they want to come across each other and they will be talking about uh, the Sapura Energy uh, case as well as Malaysia's future. So we'll see these two leaders uh, go head to head. And I saw, you know, over the weekend with the H, uh, also an article with the CEO of Petronas. And it brought, I think, the broader question about the role of Petronas in the whole scheme of things, right? Is it responsible in developing the oil and gas ecosystem? And if it is, right, to what extent is its support and role? That I, I feel is the central debate and question here. At what point does the government intervene? And over the weekend, you have to ask, what is the goal of public money and public funding, right? Is it A, to basically put money where private sector wouldn't want to do? Or is it B, to catalyze private sector? And if it's both. And I think the issue here is with Sapura, is it a situation that it doesn't qualify for both scenarios? Interesting stuff. I would be curious to see if the leaders actually talk about these very substantive issues or whether they go to populist arguments, as is the case. Uh, something to watch, I suppose. Uh, other headlines, I think there was a lot of chatter on um, Datuk Sri Ismail Sabri's uh, mention as a candidate for prime minister for UMNO, putting to rest the factionalism in, yeah. between, the, in between the party, whether that will hasten the calling of GE15, that is my question. Well, I think that's a function of the MOU, isn't it? Whether or not they will extend the MOU. I think MNO is very clear that they would not extend the MOU. That's right. And on the Malaysian Reserve, we talk about the MM2H. So as the borders open, MM2H is something that's on the back of our mind. And it is expected to pick up, but because of the stricter rules that was introduced last year, it would remain a bane. So if you look at the rules that was uh, introduced last year, it has increased the monthly income requirement from 10000 to 40000 a month. And you have to have a liquid asset of $1.5 million, And uh, your fixed deposit has to be about $1 million instead of 150000 in the past. And the minimum age has increased from 21 to 35. So they're saying these rules would definitely deter MM2H applicants. Yes, but remember, there was even a tightening worse than that before and I think this was like viewed as a compromise and even that I think is still not good enough for many quarters in That's right. this area. Whether expats will choose to ha- choose Malaysia as their second home I guess is one of those trends we're going to have to keep watching. It's coming up to 6.56 in the morning. We're heading into the 7am news bulletin and then after that we'll take a look at how global markets closed on Friday last week. Taking you to the news is David Bowie Suffragette City. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.